Hello, Transplant Pharmacists. This is Alex Wixby from the ACCP IMTR PRN New Practitioners Council. On our last podcast, we had a great panel of speakers who talked with us about how to get started on a manuscript, identify a journal, and develop a timeline. On this episode of the mTOR You Know podcast, our panel is back to dive into flipped research projects, revisions, peer review, and the transplant special issue in pharmacotherapy. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, Thank you for tuning into the mTOR You Know podcast. This podcast is created by members of the ACCP Immunology and Transplant PRN New Practitioner Council. Um, I will be one of your hosts today. My name is Kelsey Zakowskis. I just finished my PGY2 in solid organ transplant at the University of Utah Health, and I'm currently working as a PRN transplant pharmacist there and soon to transition over as a transplant pharmacist at UC Davis. And I'm Isai Area. I completed my PGY1 residency at Allegheny General Hospital out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm currently the PGY2 solid organ transplant pharmacy resident at the University of Illinois at Chicago this year. And it is our pleasure to introduce our panelists today. And thank you so much panelists for being with us. I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Lindsay Bowman. Um, She is an abdominal organ transplant pharmacotherapy specialist co-residency program director of the PGY2 solid organ transplant residency program and clinical coordinator of the transplant pharmacist at Tampa General Hospital in Tampa, Florida. In addition to serving as primary author on various manuscripts throughout her career, Lindsay has also collaborated on several joint manuscripts and recently served as a guest editor for the solid organ transplant themed special issue in pharmacotherapy. And we also have with us Dr. Jennifer Trophy Clark, who has been practicing as a clinical transplant pharmacist for the past 21 years, with the last 16 years spent practicing at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, PA. Her clinical focus areas have been kidney and pancreas transplant, as well as hand transplant. Her current role, she oversees research efforts in the abdominal transplant program at her institution, and she also serves as the chair of the Pharmacy Residency Research Committee, She holds an adjunct associate professor of medicine appointment at the renal and electrolyte and hypertension division of the Associated Faculty of the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also elected fellow of both the American College of Clinical Pharmacy and an integral or an inaugural fellow at the American Society of Transplantation. To date, she has published over 85 articles in peer-reviewed transplant and pharmacy journals and also serves as a reviewer for multiple peer-reviewed journals. Thank you both for joining us today. Something that we run into a lot, especially as residents, I found, is particularly in our field with ATC submissions being really early in the year, um, and a lot of our research models end up being more of that flipped research model. How do you recommend re-engaging with someone who maybe originally wrote the protocol for your research project at the end of the year when you're writing your manuscript? What's the best way to get them re-involved and make sure they're up to speed as well? We moved over to the flipped research model a couple of years ago, and it was, you know, for for that reason. Um, We had initially done kind of a mini research project for somebody, you know, for the resident to be able to, sub- to m- submit something to ISHLT or ATC, and then they would have a, a bigger longitudinal project. And we really, you know, took a step back and thought, 
maybe it would be better just to do the flipped research model so that they were working on one kind of larger longitudinal project, but then still were able to do that data collection early um, and get have data for ISHLT or ATC. So we've had a couple of years now of experience with the prior PGY2 writing the protocol for the IRB and getting that all set up for the incoming PGY2. And I think one way to get them re-engaged is to keep them engaged the whole time. And so recognizing that, you know, they may not be responding to every email and every discussion, but just, you know, being involved electronically or virtually in those meetings and in those email discussions throughout the year. So that at the end of the year, they're not just, they don't just have a manuscript that they're middle author, if you will, on. And then they're like, oh, I, I forgot about this project. I was wondering what happened with it. And so I think you know, trying your best to keep that person engaged throughout the year as they transition out of residency and into clinical practice is one idea. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with Lindsay. Um, we've tried it multiple ways in our residency program in the past. We've had paired a research model. We've had flipped research model. Um, for our transplant program, a lot of times we have um, large retrospective database IRB applications have already been approved before the residents arrive and we can look at various different outcomes there. Um, But I think one of the most important things um, is discussing at the beginning of the project, no matter what type of model you have, um, the authorship lineup and who's going to be the author, particularly in flip model, looking at who will be a first author, senior author. And um, there's there's actually guidelines that are available that can help you figure that out as well. Um, That are the ICJME guidelines, um, the International Committee of Medical Journals editors uh, guidelines. And so I think reviewing that with both residents at the beginning of the year helps to show this is the parts, this is what you would need to be involved in to continue to be an author on this project. Um, And again, having a group discussion uh, from day one of which author will be there so that it won't be a surprise at the end of the project. Yeah, and I think that as residents, that's something that we kind of forget to think about early on when we're getting started and, you know, excited about our projects and those kinds of things. So how do you like to open up those types of conversations and really talk about authorship order? Yeah, I love that Jen brought up that resource. Um, I have used it a few times, but I probably haven't implemented it to its fullest because, and I, and you really should. Um, and I think, you know, like Jennifer said, having those discussions up front and really addressing situations that could arise, you know, what if somebody doesn't meet a deadline and doesn't respond to emails after multiple, you know, emails or contacts trying to get the portion that that the author was working on, you know, what do you do at that point? What do you do if they don't respond to edits or review the drafts? And so I think having those discussions up front is key. And so then everybody knows, and it's really up to that author, you know, to communicate, like Jennifer said before, if something came up and deadlines need to be reassessed or, you know, something needs to, to change. 
And if they just stop responding altogether, they kind of know what, you know, the repercussions are, if you will, that they aren't going to be an author on that particular manuscript that they initially agreed to be an author on. Um, and so, again, I think having the discussions up front about the order, who's going to be first author, who's going to be last author, what about second author, third author, is it going to be in terms of how much should that person contribute? Is it going to be in alphabetical order? What is that going to look like? And coming up with those, you know, making those decisions as an author group and collaboratively, it's going to be key. Yeah, it, it can definitely be challenging at times, too. Um, another resource, in addition to the ICJME guidelines that I've sometimes used, um, for example, if I have more than one author who we're trying to figure out where those authors go in the middle, or we have someone who's not sure between third and fourth author where that goes, um, there's an article from AJHSP from 2017 um, from Padalawana. AE. Um, it's, it's by the title, you wouldn't necessarily know that the information's in it, but the title was A Practical Guide to Conducting and Writing Medical Record Review Studies um, as a Primer. Um, but there's a section in there, a table where it has authorship criteria and a scoring system. And using the ICJME criteria, they use the four criteria uh, for authorship, but then they also divided it into different tasks within that and weight each one. And basically then you can look at the scores that you have for each author and discuss those scores with the group and say, here's where the scores come out to um, based on these scores. Maybe this individual should be third or fourth author and where should we go from here? Or maybe you have scores that are equivalent. And then you can discuss as a group and um, using this objective measure um, where they should be in the author lineup. And I think if someone's not responding at all, you know, you could always consider uh, discussing with them if they want to be uh, acknowledged versus an author, if they're not meeting authorship criteria. I've had that happen before as well. Thank you both so much for that information on authorship. I think that's something we don't think about as much as being in residency and coming directly out, but it's something important to keep in mind throughout our future career. And I think those resources, Jennifer, that you mentioned are gonna be extremely helpful um, because reading all of the literature that we read as residents, um, we know some basic information about the author uh, order, but not a lot of information of what the detail and the brevity that goes into that. So um, just a question along the lines of this authorship is if you do unfortunately have to um, talk to a co-author that's not meeting deadlines or not responding, how do you approach those situations in um, a professional manner and ensure that everybody is um, on the same page when you're getting ready to submit for publication? I'm gonna let Jen take this one. Yeah, that's definitely a critical <laughs> question. And honest, I mean, I think honest communication is the best. Um, you know, if, if you have documentation that the person's, for example, missed multiple meetings or they're not responding to emails, um, one of the things I do is re-review what the ICJME criteria are uh, and review that with them and say, you, you have to meet these criteria to be an author. Um, you have to have substantial contribution. You have to be involved in the drafting of the work and the revision. You have to be involved in the final approval. You have to agree to be accountable for all parts of the work. If they're not meeting that criteria, 
um, it's it's nothing personal, but you just you can't have someone serving as an author. Um, it literally doesn't meet that criteria. They can't be an author. Um, so it sort of takes that emotional component out of it. It's pretty black and white. Um, and, you know, trying to decide from there, then uh, is there a way to continue to have this individual maybe change what they're doing and potentially meet author criteria or not? Um, you know, even the, the guidelines themselves say that in the process of revising um, before you get to publication, you may end up shifting up your author order depending on the author's contribution. So what you started out with may look different by the time you get to publication. Um, but what you don't want to happen is you, you don't want to submit something for publication and then after the fact try to change the authorship. Um, that's a a very large issue and something difficult to do. Uh, you have to give an explanation to the journal why you would be doing that. Um, so that should all be determined ahead of time. Um, and again, I think just re-reviewing from time to time what the authorship guidelines are, making sure everyone's aware of those criteria, making sure everyone's meeting them. And if there's someone you don't think who's meeting them, um, you know, maybe having a one-on-one, -on -one, if you're the lead author, give the lead author the opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one with them um, to see where the future direction with that, of that will be going from there. Lindsay? Yeah, I don't really have anything to add. Um, I think that's all really great advice. And I think they, I, I think it is, those are hard discussions to have. Um, but I love, Jennifer, the way that you said kind of using those and it takes the emotional aspect out of it. And I love that you said it's nothing personal. And I think that's very true. And I think as you do collaborative papers and writing, people, people start to know, you know, that it isn't something that's personal. And I think going back to something concrete, like those guidelines and having those discussions sooner rather than later, not waiting until it's time to actually submit um, the article, takes some of that, that away as well. Thank you for that information. I think it, that's very helpful on how to kind of have those guidelines so you're able to keep things black and white and kind of keep things moving with regards to authorship. And um, before our listeners potentially have the opportunity to review these guidelines, um, just in general, kind of how, how does authorship work in regards to the order, like first author and last or last author, just like who would be in those places and throughout the middle, just kind of in a general um, overview for our audience. So usually the lead author is the one who has contributed the greatest amount of work and has been most involved in the project. Um, and then your senior author is usually maybe someone, for example, who's overseeing acting in a preceptor role, for example, to a trainee. Um, or if you have a collaboration where uh, you have a pharmacist and a non-pharmacist working together, maybe you have a physician who is overseeing this project, but the pharmacist has done all the day-to-day -day work on the project, the pharmacist should be the first author. Uh, and as long as the senior author meets the ICJME guidelines, they should be the senior author. Um, and, you know, you do have to make sure that they meet that, those guidelines. So sometimes, um, particularly in older times, you would see the chair of a department added as the senior author just because they're chair of the department. You cannot do that for a manuscript. They must meet those ICJME guidelines to be included. Generally, the second and third author, the uh, your second or third author um, is typically maybe your statistician, depending on their contributions. 
and also maybe uh, the second person who assisted, for example, a resident with a research project to the greater degree. Um, and then beyond that, again, depending on the number of authors, when you start getting into authors three, four, and beyond, um, that's when I start to look at that weighted criteria uh, and have an open discussion with the group as well um, to see where we want to have everyone in terms of authorship lineup. Awesome. Thanks for that general overview. I think that's helpful for uh, new practitioners starting out to just kind of get a general sense of the author order. And um, as we previously um, kind of alluded to, when you get ready and you've submitted your publication and you're happy, then it comes time to turn around and do revisions. And so I have only authored one paper, but it was an 11 month period of a lot of back and forth. And so I think um, what when you get your first set of revisions back from a journal, what is an appropriate turnaround time to address those revisions? And about how long does that usually take to get those revisions sent to you? I can take this one. Um, you know, I think it depends on the journal and depends what's going on with the journal. So some, and, and usually they will have some guidance of how, how long you should expect to hear a response. Not all of them do, but some of them do, just to give you a, an idea. And you will also be able to log in to where you submitted the manuscript and kind of see where is it now? Is it with the editorial staff? Is it with the reviewers? Is it awaiting, you know, final response from, you know, the final editor in chief to determine? So you kind of can see where it is in the process, so at least gives you a little bit of an idea. Um, but really, I think the turnaround time in terms of when you're going to hear a response and get the initial revisions um, is going to depend on the journal. It's also going to depend on the journal how long you have to make the revisions from the reviewers and address the reviewers' comments. And so they'll give you a date um, that says, you know, in four weeks, five weeks, you need to have these addressed. I personally think if you can respond to the reviewer comments and address them as soon as possible or as soon as you can is better, just because it's going to be more fresh on your mind because you just did the manuscript not too long ago. Also, it's going to get your paper published quicker, right? And so you don't run the risk the longer time you spend making the reviews and waiting for responses, you run the risk of something else being published. And now your discussion section or maybe your manuscript in general is not as relevant as it was three months ago, you know, two, three months ago. So I think if you're able to get the reviews done um, or the revisions done and address the reviewers' comments soon, uh, sooner rather than later, that would be ideal for those reasons. Yeah, I, I would agree with everything that Lindsay said um, and also add that, again, part of your author's responsibilities are to help you address those revisions as well. Um, they're also responsible for the integrity of the work, too, and addressing any questions that the reviewers have. So in our institution, many times, especially if it's, you know, a large um study that we're working on, um, you know, the lead author, for example, might give me three or four things to address from the reviewers. And another author will have another two or three things to address. And we make our own internal deadlines for those um, to stay 
in line with the overall deadline for the journal in terms of when the journal wants to uh, receive that back. And as Lindsay said, it varies for each journal. Um, some of them will give you as long as 90 days. Some of them will be as short as 10 days. Um, it, it really varies greatly. And, you know, it don't want to do it, but if you need to do, sometimes you can ask for an extension. If you need to um, extensively review something or revise it. Um, but again, as Lindsay mentioned, you also run the risk then that something else may be published um, in the time that you're still working on your revisions. Wonderful. I think that's um, that's great that most of the journals have a strict deadline, but I think it's definitely important, like you both mentioned, to do the revisions as soon as possible so you can get your literature out there before potentially other stuff is published. And so um, as you're doing the revisions, how do you go about responding to um, the um, to the comments that the are wanted of you and the questions that the reviewers potentially have throughout the paper and how do you stay grounded and keep your emotions at bay if some of the information that they're asking or the questions that um, they're asking of you are frustrating at times? I don't know about you, Lindsay, but when I first get um, my set of revisions, I read through them first and then I walk away from them. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that for sure. <laughs> You definitely have that emotional component the first time you look at it and say, what? They didn't understand what I meant. I thought it was as clear as could be. Or what do you mean you want me to delineate this further or add to supplement this? And yeah, there's definitely an emotional component to it. It's, it's your baby. You've brought it all the way to publication. Um, so I think the first thing to do is to read read those comments take a deep breath, walk away from it, take a walk outside um, and come back with a fresh perspective and know that this is meant to be constructive criticism. Uh, it's meant to ultimately improve the quality of your manuscript. So although you may not agree with everything that the reviewers are saying, you do have to address those points. Um, and you know, hopefully in the end, it will also make your manuscript a much better quality publication. I think sometimes there are things that the reviewers ask you to do that may be well outside the scope, for example, of uh, what your publication you were planning your publication to be. In scenarios like that, you can also reach out to the editor and explain to them your rationale. Um, you know, you can't just reach out to the editor and say, I don't agree with this reviewer. You have to give a rationale for why you don't agree and why you think this is outside of the scope. Um, and sometimes the, re the editor will come back to you and say, yes, I agree. That's fine. You can include in your response to the reviewers that this was discussed with the editor and felt to be outside of the scope of the revision. Um, you know, or other times the editor might come back and say, I agree with the um, reviewers and you know, if, if you want an opportunity to have your paper published, you have to address this. Lindsay? Yeah, I love, I love that. And I take the same, the same approach, um, you know, and, and it does kind of get you down, especially if you've gotten immediate rejection. So you don't even have a chance to address the reviewer's comments. And then, you know, how do I stay motivated? Where do I go next? And I think just using even those rejections, you're going to get reviewer comments. And so even though you don't have to address them, you can use those. And I think we all probably do to beef up the manuscript and for the next, for the next journal. 
um, and, and using their recommendations to try to address those, even though you don't have to formally address them because you're not able to resubmit um, always, but using those as feedback to make your manuscript stronger for the next journal. I think that's super helpful and hearing from uh, Lindsay and Jennifer who are extremely um, well-rounded in authorship and manuscript writing that um, everybody's going to be emotional and that's okay. And just maybe reading it and taking a step back and moving away and then coming back to handle um, the potential revisions. I think that's really helpful to hear from both of your perspectives. And so um, Lindsay, you kind of touched on this. Um, how do you handle the rejection and like, where do you go next? So if you get completely rejected and um, the, our, the, our journal is maybe just not interested in um, the work that you're submitting, like how do you decide where to go, where to shift? Do you take a little bit of time to think about maybe where you're going to modify the manuscript to go to a different place? How do you handle that? Um, from a professional perspective and then a personal um, perspective as well. Yeah, I think like, you know, Jennifer was saying, this is your baby. You've already spent so much time with this manuscript, whether it was a research project that you're now writing up or a review article or whatever it is, letter to the editor, whatever you're doing. And so it is tough when you get those immediate rejections and then trying to think, oh man, I'm have to spend all this time reformatting it. So even once you think about, okay, where do I want to resubmit this to? And I, I think to answer your first question, it's important to, to spend a little bit of time and think about, okay, are these things that the reviewers are telling me that are fatal flaws? Are they, are these things that I can fix and resubmit to a different journal? Are these things that maybe are going, it's going to continue to prohibit me from publishing this. And so do I need to take a minute and go back and recollect X data to make it stronger and more publishable? And so I think every response that you get, you should be thinking about those things and then thinking about, okay, do I need to, like I said, go back into the charts and, you know, open back up my IRBE and recollect and then submit to a different journal? Or is this something that I can you know, tweak this or that and resubmit to a different journal. And I think going back to the drawing board, like we talked about earlier in this discussion about what is my audience, where, you know, what other journals make sense for me to approach next and then, and then going that route. And then, you know, at some point it may get to where you've submitted to three, four journals and you're still getting the same response. And I think every time, again, you have to really think about, is it something that I can fix to make this publishable? Or was it something in the, you know, initial design? And I don't, I don't have the ability to, to, to make this publishable and then deciding where to go at that point. Yeah, I think it's really important to, at that point, you want to have an internal strategic plan with your co-authors. You might want to ask for input for other collaborators at your site, or depending on if it's a multi-center study, um, for example, uh, input from other individuals um, to kind of get their perspective on what they're thinking about the reviewers' comments and in terms of whether they would think that uh, this manuscript is publishable, or as Lindsay mentioned, it has some fatal flaw. 
Um, and I think there's different approaches you can take from there. As, as Lindsay mentioned, you could go back and see what else you could collect. Um, you may have another study that's very similar that you're also working on that's similar to that first one. Maybe you decide that the first one alone isn't publishable, but now you're going to combine the data from the first and the second study together and publish it that way instead. Um, or you might say, you know, take it down a notch or two and say it's not going to be an original research, but maybe I can consider it as, um, you know, a case presentation in a review article or maybe a letter to the editor, um, you know, and thinking how you can, um, you know, the relevance of that publication, how you can get that to your audience that would most benefit from it. Yeah, definitely all great points. So many different directions this can go and so many different emotions along the way as well. So kind of turning the table a little bit here from, you know, submitting your manuscript to the perspective of peer review. So how does one kind of get started in peer review and what tips do you have for people who are interested in getting started in peer reviewing? I would love for Jennifer to take this one as well. And the reason why I'm throwing it to you, Jennifer, is because... I have seen Jennifer's reviews as a reviewer for our <laughs> pharmacotherapy themed issue. And she's an amazing reviewer. Um, I will, you know, before I hand it over to her, I would say that being a reviewer is really a great process. Um, and I feel like you'll evolve the more of them that you do. I certainly have. Um, but you also, when you get those, those, um, asked to be a reviewer, you also have to think, do I have the time to commit to this? Because it is something that is a time commitment. So I'll hand it over to you, Jennifer, to address some of these, because I know that you're an amazing reviewer. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, so I think there's different ways to look at it. Um, I think if you've never done peer review, one of the main things that I advocate, whether you're early in your career or you're still training your student or a resident, is to reach out to someone who does do peer review that's working with you and ask if next time they accept an article that they're going to serve as a peer reviewer on, could you participate with them in that? Um, many people don't know you can email the editor after you've accepted and said, yes, I, you know, I'm going to review this article. You can email the editor and ask for permission to have someone else involved in that process with you as a learning experience. Um, of course, you know, they have to follow the same guidelines you do as terms of confidentiality, and you do have to acknowledge them in your review and let the editors know that they, you know, what role did they take? How did they participate in the review? But that is a great way um, for folks who have never done it before to learn, to see how maybe a more uh, senior reviewer approaches the process and learn from doing it. And for me, it's something I do with um, all of our residents on a regular basis. Um, and a lot find it to be really beneficial. Um, there's also some training guides online that you can follow uh, that are available for free. There's um, also some of the publisher websites like, like Wiley or Taylor and Francis have um, quite extensive overviews on how to serve as a peer reviewer. There's also an article from ASH system pharmacist um, looking at um, what you can do to improve peer review from Dr. DeMonico. Um, so there's a couple resources out there that can get you started um, kind of with an overview on 
what are the basics. But honestly, I think the best way to do it is if you can do it with somebody else who's already serving as a peer reviewer and learn firsthand what their approach is. And maybe you do it with a couple different colleagues because we all you know, do things slightly differently, um, but that should uh, help to give you a good foundation to build upon. Awesome. Thank you, guys. And before we wrap up, um, I know that both of you in different ways were involved in the transplant special issue. So could you guys give us a little insight into that as to where did the idea come from and, you know, how did things look from start to finish from each of your perspectives? Yeah, so the idea actually originated from a simple call for special issue topics from pharmacotherapy and JACCP. And I can really take no credit um, for the initial um, thoughts on, on, on how we would go about this because that was really Chrissy Dolgowski. She was the chair of the PRN at the time, and I was the chair elect. And she had the idea, you know, we should submit something and really, really highlight transplant pharmacy and show everything that we're doing as clinicians in terms of original research. And then also identifying some of those gaps in the literature that we have, thinking about review articles. And so she and I got together actually at ATC of 2019, and we sat down for a couple of hours and really just thought about you know, here's some of the things that we feel like is lacking in the literature and would really serve as great reviews and great review articles. And then um, from there, thinking about authors of who we would want to be involved, we thought about people that are, were experts in the field, like Jennifer um, and, and others to invite them to be part of, of the author um, authorship of these given reviews. We wanted to identify eight to 10 articles. Um, and so when we thought about, okay, here's the gaps in the literature that currently exist. Here are some ideas. Here are some author names for these given manuscripts. Manuscripts, we also sent a call out for other ideas, either original research or review articles to the PRN, to our members, to engage them as well. And people had a chance to respond to Chrissy and I and say, you know, I think this would be a really great topic, or I have this research article. And it was, it was ultimately um, left up to Lindsay Devine as the editor-in-chief for pharmacotherapy to say, yes, I like this article or this idea. I don't like this one. And so that's how we ended up with the papers that we ended ended up with. And so it was a really, really great process uh, for me because I had never done anything like that, Chrissy as well. And we really learned a lot throughout the process. And I think it really came together into a really great special, special issue that I look at quite a bit, um, was just looking at it the other day when we were doing our, or evaluating rather our first simultaneous liver lung um, and, and looking at the combined organ section uh, or paper, if you will, so. Yeah, I served in the capacity of a reviewer versus an author. And um, sometimes, especially when you're getting multiple requests to serve as an author, you're not always able to accept all of them. And that's one of those scenarios where you have to look and say, 
could I do this to the fullest of my ability and participate? And if you can't, it's really not fair to the other individuals who are working on the project to accept it. Um, so there are instances where I've um, said I couldn't serve as an author, but I'd be more than willing to serve as a reviewer, for example. Um, so this was a similar situation here. Um, and it's it's a great reference and um, I've been very happy to be involved with it. And it's amazing to see where where things start and where they end up in final publication. You can really see all the work and effort that's gone into it along the way. I absolutely love that pharmacotherapy issue. I did my residency CE on um, DOAX and salt organ transplant. So I actually used um, Alex is paper as well as I've used like the body extreme paper many times to kind of talk about and discuss things with our patients. So I think it's a great uh, resource that we have out there. And I think it's a great avenue to show what all solid organ transplant pharmacists have the capabilities to do. So it's wonderful that you both were able to be involved in this in different capacities. And so um, as we're wrapping up, is there any last minute advice, tips, or anything you have for the audience with regards to authorship or manuscript that you'd like to leave us with? I think my main advice would be don't give up. Don't give up on yourself or on your manuscript. You may have to take a little bit more of a convoluted path to get to the end than you thought, but um, persevere. That's what's most important, um, which will help you to grow personally as well as professionally. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I could say it any better than the way that Jennifer's ending this. Um, I think, you know, my biggest advice and, and keys to being successful is, you know, what I said earlier is don't overcommit. I think that as long as you have the time to dedicate, then you will not give up <laughs> and you'll see it through to fruition. So Wonderful. Thank you both so much for joining us on behalf of the ACCP uh, IMTR PRN New Practitioner Council. Um, we want to thank Dr. Bowman and Dr. Trophy Clark so much for being able to join us um, during this podcast on authorship and manuscript. And we really appreciate all of your insight and expertise in this process. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm.